turning in your Bibles to uh, Genesis 18. It was a long text, but we looked at, a couple weeks ago, we looked at a part of that text, and so we're not going to spend as much time in the first half. Um, just a couple of, of sort of notes here as we begin. First of all, I'm, we were, thank, thank, thank you to you for the last week that uh, Caleb and I were able to go into um, Gets a lot of stuff done, a lot of preparation, uh, some refresh is very helpful. Thank you. Thank you for welcoming Jason Eamon. Um, really appreciated his Christ-centered teaching from Hebrews. Um, so I'm appreciative of him and for you for that. But we're jumping back into Genesis 18. Um, this is the middle of a story. It's kind of hard to... Uh, to take a break from uh, things like narratives of the Old Testament because then you come back a couple weeks later and you're like, okay, wait, where were we? What was going on here? And I don't have time today to really do a lot of review on that, but instead of going back to think about Abraham, I want you to think with me, first of all, about Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve, back in Genesis chapter 3, rebelled against God, plunged the world under his curse, and God brought judgment on the world, them and us included, in that. But in his judgment, he promised that there would be a seed or a descendant born of the woman. The ironic twist being she was the first to be deceived and she would be the one who would bring the seed of salvation. So this seed would be born of the woman and it's prophesied that he would crush the head of evil, Satan, the evil one. So in doing this crushing of the head of Satan, we see very quickly in the first part of Genesis that we're talking about something beyond a mere mortal here. Because who can crush the head of the evil one called the Satan, the devil, the adversary, if, if not more than man? Now, this becomes a theme through the book of Genesis, this seed. When you're reading Genesis, and really the Old Testament, but Genesis, notice how often the idea of seed or descendant comes up. And a lot of what Genesis is, is it's God through the Spirit showing us that He's fulfilling that promise that He made to our first parents, to us in them. And so they had two children, a seed came from Adam and Eve, and it became very evident that they were not the snake crusher, the evil destroyers because they found there was evil, the seed of the serpent, the seed of Satan was found in their firstborn. He murdered his brother. And so then a third son, Seth, comes along, but he and his children can't be that seed because the next chapter tells us that they all died and didn't live again. So we keep coming to, okay, a, a son, a descendant, a descendant. It's not him. It's not him. It's not him. And then you find this issue that the seed of the serpent, or another way to say that is, the spiritual offspring of Satan, the evil that was there, not only ran concurrent with the seed of the righteous, but overwhelmed the seed of the righteous. And you come to a place in Genesis chapter 6 where there is nearly none left that could be called righteous. Only one man, not because he's righteous, but only one man in his family, ironically three sons as well, is saved because it says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God was gracious to him. And the whole world is destroyed with a flood. 
to judge the evil that man has taken upon himself to perpetuate. Immediately after that, we find that, okay, so what about the descendants or the seed of Noah? Well, one of his sons happens to be just like the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, and that's not it. But God promises the seed, so he preserves through Noah's son, Shem, more offspring. Once again, they live a long time, but they still die. It can't be that deliverer, that savior of humanity. But then something unusual happens with the descendant of Shem, this man who himself is a pagan seed of Satan, a worshiper of false gods. God calls him out of his false worship in the Chaldean region and calls him to worship the Lord alone, and this man is Abram. And then God reveals to this man that through he and his wife, there's going to be an advancement in this promise made to Eve. I mean, advancement. This will be the family of all the families of the earth. This will be the family through which that promised seed to Eve and Adam will come. We've identified, it's narrowing, we've identified the family. But there's a problem. They can't have any children. They're getting too old. And this is simply because God likes, enjoys making promises that He alone can uphold. And so He makes a promise to the wrong people. He makes a promise to the ones that really are not, shouldn't be the ones He makes a promise to, humanly speaking. But maybe there's a little bit of hope. They're not that old yet. So they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and to no avail. Now, of course, if we were to look at the whole story, we would see that indeed they do have a son, which we're getting to in our text, and most of you already know that. And that son has a son, and so on, and it narrows down to another son. We identify not only the family, but now we identify the specific tribe in that family, and we narrow not only that, but what he's going to do as king through this David, and then it keeps going down and narrowing and narrowing down until we have another impossible situation thousands of years later with another similar where a woman can't have a child because she's a virgin, and yet God brings the seed through her. And of course, then that seed is the last one. And from then on, in the history of humanity, now instead of narrowing down to one, now it expands to all the earth. And all who are in that one are now the seed of Eve. They're born of the woman just along with them. They are in the Christ. Of course, his name will be aptly Jesus, which is a little bit of a take on Yahweh saves. And so we see the big picture here, starting in Genesis 3. And when we're looking at Abraham and Sarah, we're kind of in this really important pivot moment in this promise, in this big biblical theological picture. And yet we are encountering in chapter 18, 17, 18, and 19 a problem. Now, one of the things back in Genesis 3 that's significant is that though there is the promise of the seed, the descendant to come through Eve that would save the world from their sin, bless all nations, bless all peoples, there is also said by the Lord that running concurrently with the seed of the woman in this constant sort of 
bringing through forth the seed will be the seed of the serpent or evil will run concurrently. And the text says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that they will be at enmity or at odds with one another. So every time you see a promise of God's blessing of bringing the seed of righteousness, there will be right next to it wickedness and evil and death and destruction. This is all my introduction to Genesis 70 through 19 because that's exactly what we have in this text here. Genesis chapter 17, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, is this pivot, really important moment where the fulfillment of the promise of the seed through Abraham comes to its brightest place. Now, no, the child's not born yet, but God says to Abraham in chapter 17, this next year, like there's a timeline on it now. This is going to be really big uh, movement. This is going to be a big deal in the fulfillment of the promise. And so significant is this time that Genesis 17 is characterized by the phrase laughter. Um, Abraham laughs. And I think with a bit of a smile, the Lord says, yeah, let's name him Isaac, laughter. Let's name your seed laughter. And the righteous seed is coming up. God is preserving his promise. He's bringing about the seed. But you get theological whiplash when you read Genesis 19. Because the theme of Genesis 19 is Sodom or burning. Judgment, destruction, devastation. And this because the seed of Satan, the wickedness, the evil, is grown prevalent in the city. And this is proverbial. There is a family with the hope of a baby, three people, that are characterized in this text as trusting the promises of God. Abraham believed God and was accounted him for righteousness. And the emphasis is, okay, there's this small small fulfillment of the seed coming through. Then you look across east on the plains and there's massive cities filled with wickedness and evil. And this becomes proverbial for then and now. The idea that a remnant exists amongst the majority of evil. So chapter 18, which we're not in 17 or 19, we're in chapter 18, is a little bit interesting literarily it's like a bridge text between the two. So it's one story, a story of these heavenly visitors who come to Abraham and Sarah. And yet the first half of chapter 18 connects back to chapter 17. The theme of that first half is laughter. Sarah laughs. Isaac is named. Sarah, you laughed. No, I didn't laugh. I laughed, laugh, laugh, laugh. It's mentioned over, over and over again. And the second half of Genesis 18, 16 through 33, it's... Justice, judgment, execution. And that connects to chapter 19. So when you're reading Genesis 17, 18, 19, you got to read them all together, right? But you can't because it's so much. But they connect here. So today my task is to tell the one story. I just wanted us to think through the bridge concept here and think of the bigger picture in the theology of the text. And really there's two parts and we're just going to, I'm going to quickly tell the story in two parts and then move as quickly as I can to the application for us. 
very soon after chapter 17 takes place, very soon after Abraham has a visit from the Lord Yahweh himself, and he's told within a year a son will be born, very soon this takes place. Probably days, weeks, surely no more than a month has elapsed in order for the timing to work of Isaac's birth. That has to be the situation. Interestingly, it appears that Abraham has not really talked too much about to Sarah about what he saw. She seems sort of out of the loop here. But Abraham is standing or sitting in this tent door in the desert in the middle of the day. The heat is bearing down in this high desert in Judea. And he looks off in the distance and there's three visitors, three strangers walking toward him. What a strange thing. This is not the time to be traveling. This is the time to be getting in the shade, like Abraham's doing. What are these guys doing out here? He jumps up. He runs toward them. He's like, what are you? What are you? Come, come. Come to my shade. Come in here. And he invites them, and he says, please, let me, let me give you a morsel of bread. Here, let me wash your feet. Let me give you a morsel of bread, a little bit of bread, just a little bit of bread. Now, this is unusual but not unknown. Middle Eastern hospitality has remained the same for thousands of years. In fact, some of the things that it talks about him feeding are the same sort of things you would eat if you went into the Middle East today. It's a very long tradition here. So, of course, they're known for their hospitality, and Abram is the quintessential Bedouin, known for his hospitality. But this, even still, is a little bit more than normal. And the text is very explicit in his hospitality, isn't it? Even describing the recipe of the cakes they're going to make. So you just see this urgency in Abraham. Sit down, here, sit down. Let me, can I get you in? Let me wash your feet. A morsel of bread. And they say, okay, yes, you can give us a morsel of bread. Now, he does more than a morsel of bread. He runs to his men and he says, kill a cow. A young, tender one. Let's have a barbecue. And so they have a barbecue, and he runs to Sarah, quickly, make cakes. And they, she makes the food, and she's hustling and bustling, and he's hustling. And then he's, the picture is just kind of really interesting. He then feeds, lays a feast out in front of these three strangers. And to this point, he doesn't know who they are. There's no indication in the text that he has any idea who they are. They're called men in the text to indicate that they, they just look like normal people. And... He stands there, you kind of picture your mind with like the waiter with standing with the towel over your arm as they eat the traditional uh, curds drink that Bedouins eat, a yogurt drink that they would eat there. And so he's standing there watching them as they're eating, as they're drinking this, it says in the text, at the very end of the meal. And then they say something that surprises him. Where is Sarah, your wife? Now the surprising part about that is up to this point, there's no indication of who they are, but they know them, right? He knows Sarah by name. Abraham responds. We don't really know what his, um, what his tone was, but I'm sure it was a little bit of a, in the tent. <laughs> Why does this matter? And then we have this glorious promise, and now we know who we're, who's talking. Now we know who's talking because the text says, I will certainly return to you. Now it's really fascinating. In this text, it fluctuates between the plural because there's three of them, right? And the singular, I. I will return to them. And it seems like there is a spokesman in the group that's talking. It seems like someone has an entourage or an escort 
there. He says, I will return to you. And what does he say? He gives the exact same promise that he told Abraham in chapter 17. So now, at least Abraham knows exactly who he's talking to, right? He knows this is Yahweh. He was hospitable before he knew it was Yahweh. Perhaps he was thinking, or perhaps the author of Hebrews was thinking about Abraham when he wrote in Hebrews 13, be careful to uh, be hospitable to strangers because some have entertained angels unawares. <laughs> perhaps the author of Hebrews was like, just like when Abraham did it. And so he's being hospitable, but now everything changes and shifts. Now, we talked about this two weeks ago. Sarah's behind the tent door. The man's back is to her. And she, when, when he hears this news, when she hears this news that she's going to have a child, within, like soon, she laughs within herself. I don't even know what an internal laugh is. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I do it. I just can't really identify it to you. I couldn't show you because then it wouldn't be internal. And the Lord sees through the tent and round behind his back and into her mind and hears her laughing inside. So now we have no doubt who this is, right? There's no question. This is Yahweh. This is the God who knows everything and sees everything. And of course, he gets even a little bit more sort of dicey when he says, why'd you laugh? <laughs> Whew. Now, let's get a little hot in here. So, all this is happening, and Sarah's laughing, not, I don't think, out of unbelief, as I said last week, two weeks ago, but out of incredu incredulity. This is not something that just somebody drops in and tells you, and you're like, oh, okay. This is unique. And she says, and the text wants us to know why this is so crazy, because it says it, per perhaps a little insulting to our modern sensibilities, three different ways. Now, it says in the text, now, Abraham and Sarah were old, okay, well advanced in age. Okay, past the time of childbearing. Like it says it three times there in case we didn't get it the first time. This is impossible. That's why she laughs. But then the rhetorical question brought about by the Lord is, is there anything too hard for the Lord? That word hard is the word wonderful or amazing or extreme. Is there anything too great Anything beyond the pale of possibility with the Lord? Rhetorical question. And then he says again, I will return to you. And Sarah's will have a son. She denied it, as I would have too. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't laugh. This is wonderful. He says, no, you, you did. But you see, the theme there is the laughter once again. That's what connects it back to chapter 17. Now, whatever, people go into different lengths to talk about, well, was there unbelieving, was there doubt? Some people, I think, ridiculously suggest that Abraham was believing, but Sarah was doubting. Like, but they both laughed. <laughs> that, that's really all not to the point. The point is that you cannot read chapter 17 and 18 without a smile. Right? That's part of 18. You cannot read it. And just think about this. The Lord takes on a human veil of some sort, come and sits down and has a barbecue with Abraham, and then almost with a proverbial wink, drops this bomb. Oh yeah, you're going to have a kid, by the way. Like, this is a funny story. This is a, like a, a delightful thing to consider. This is it. This is, the time is now. This is like Sarah start knitting the hat, right? It's going to happen. It's, it's time. 
your desires your whole life. It's time. And then Yahweh leaves. And this moves to the second half of the narrative, which now connects further with chapter 19. Verse 16 says, The men rose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abram went with them to send them on the way. So they're going east. Now what's fascinating about this story, this part of the story, the first part that's fascinating, is the Lord's interaction within the divine council with himself. 18 through 21, he's not talking to Abraham. 18 through 21, the Lord is talking to himself. Now have we seen that before? He says within himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Have we seen him speak that way before? Actually, we have in the text of scriptures. This reminds us a little bit. If you were to read this, we don't have time to go back and read it again. If you were to look closely, you would see some very similar language and sort of the same tone as when God looks down from heaven and says, sees the wickedness of the earth in Genesis chapter 6 and then talks within himself about what he will do. And then the language is very similar to after the flood when there was this mighty group of people that banded together to rebel against God and he says the Lord speaks within himself shall I go down to confound them in other words there is meant to be as we're reading this Moses wants to kind of get the hint of what's coming next that there is a doom tone God is taking counsel within his triune being about the judgment on the wicked and that's what's going on. That's the first remarkable thing in this inner dialogue of the Lord. Obviously, it's metaphorical. I mean, the Lord doesn't need to come down. That's, a, that's something for our benefit to understand. But every time it's described that way in the Old Testament, it's the tone of judgment. The second remarkable thing in this little dialogue the Lord has is that he resolves to share this burden with Abraham. A frightening but great privilege his reason is twofold. He says first, for I have known him in order that he might command his children and his household after him. That word known there is the Hebrew understanding I have chosen him. He's my chosen one. He's elect. Should not my elect know of my judgment? Should he not know not only of laughter, but of the justice and righteousness that pours from my throne? Shall not my elect know this? The second reason that the Lord resolves to share his burden is this, what would happen in Genesis 19, which we'll look at next week, is intended to be a remarkable example for Abraham and his children. It says in the text, reason I need to tell them is he's, I've already told him he's going to command his children after me. And notice what it says in the text in verse 19 that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. Mishpat, that word will come up later. That the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Do you understand that what we're going to look at next week in the great devastation and destruction on the wicked uh, sinners and those who are unrepentant in Sodom was amended, intended by God to be an example, a word of instruction and warning to the elect was meant to be for Abraham and his children to remember Sodom. Remember Sodom. It will come up again in chapter 19 when we even hear about Lot's wife. And the text later on in the New Testament says, remember Lot's wife. 
There's an example here. There's something to remember here and what it primarily says in the text. If they're going to do justice, I want them to know what justice is. So that's the second remarkable reason the Lord chooses to share His burden with Abraham. But there's a third one, and that is that what we see following in chapter 18 in the rest of this text is God is essentially inviting, even baiting in a good sense, drawing Abraham into intercession. See, it's the Lord who sets the stage for Abraham to then ask the questions, wait, what are you going to do? Wait, this, some, something's off here. Let's talk. He's drawing Abraham into conversation. He's drawing Abraham into intercession. God desires the interaction with his elect even as he knows and he has determined his choice already. Isn't that really a helpful way to understand prayer? That we pray not because we think that by our many words or how we say things or how we phrase things, we could twist the arm of the Almighty. He is sovereign. He has determined justice and righteousness and mercy and grace. And we pray not because we're trying to combat that, but because we believe it. And so we interact with the sovereign one. We intercede in light of the understanding that the judge of all the earth will do right. And so he draws Abraham into intercession. Prayer is his gracious choice, even as he sovereign is sovereign in his determinations. Now, once again, if you were to continue reading this text as read earlier, it's anthropomorphic. God says, I got to go down to see if the outcry is true, if it's really correct, that they're as bad as it sounds like they are. That's anthropomorphic. It, God, this is the same God that looked through into Sarah's laughing in her heart and knew exactly what was going on. He's not suddenly... But he can hear Sarah's laughing in her heart, but he can't hear the outcry in Sodom. He's not sure. No, this is anthropomorphic. This is made for, uh, from our perspective. Why, though? I was reading this. This is one of the things that I was reading and saying, like, a lot of this 18 is kind of tough, but this one I was like, why is that even there? We, we know why. Their outcry is great. You know all things. You know their wickedness. Why did you take the time to have the Holy Spirit pen it in such a way that it sounds like God needs to go and uh, educate he needs to go down and see the wickedness. And I think there is a very significant, and I hope to you, helpful, quick comment. I'm going to just quote Chrysostom, who was an early church father. He said this, Sentence is not pronounced without proof. God is showing that even in his justice and his righteousness, it's not petty. It's not moody. He didn't wake up and have a bad night of sleep, and so he says, you know what, I'm going to throw some fire and brimstone down on Sodom today. That's not it. He knows what's happening, and yet... Before he brings the judgment, the sentence of judgment, he establishes proof and evidence that it's deserved. He is the judge who will do justly. He's not an impartial judge. And so the anthropomorphic lessons in the text here is God saying, listen, I'm going to prove to everyone and the descendants after them that when I judge, it is right. It is just. 
the aseity of God is very important. The aseity of God is simply that God is not swayed by human emotions as we are swayed. He is righteous and He is truth and He is just. He is simultaneously love and light. Not one and then the other. He's not fickle. One person described aseity probably a little unfairly, but to basically say God's not like a moody teenager. Up and down with his emotions. He's a judge. He's just. He establishes proof and then he executes. Well, this all rattles Abraham. Interestingly, I am confident that Abraham is rattled because he knows somebody in Sodom, right? But what's interesting is that never comes up in the text. That would have been my first go-to. But my nephew's down there. For me, can you just kind of like do a little something? But it never comes up. That's never the basis of Abraham's intercession. Is not that he knows somebody down there and he has somebody he loves in there. Interesting to think about that. Now what's fascinating is now those two men of the three, they leave and they go to Sodom. This is all, I think, really, really interesting and you have to work it out yourself. Genesis 19.1 says that they were angels. So now we know the whole picture, right? One's Yahweh of the three and an angelic entourage, right? So two angels escorting Yahweh in this. Yahweh stays with Abraham to have this interaction, and the two angels go down to Sodom. Now, from what Abraham has heard, and then he sees the angels go to Sodom, what do you suppose he's thinking they're doing? These must be the angels of death, the avenging angels, right? What he doesn't know, and this is a lesson to us that God is sovereign and we are not, what he doesn't know is they're actually on a rescue mission. That They're actually going down to get Lot out of there. But it's like the story of Job. God doesn't tell Abraham that. And Abraham doesn't go to there. I'm sure it's in the back of his mind. So we have this very interesting interaction between the Lord and Abraham here. And we're not going to walk through it and all the different things there. A couple things you can notice as you look at it on your own is Abraham exemplifies intercession. I think the normal intercession when you're standing before the Lord God, Lord of hosts, in a very good way. He's very bold. He's very courageous. And he's very respectful and understanding of who he's talking to. He says it often. Don't be angry with me that I can even talk to you. But he's also bold in what he's asking. He's coming boldly to the throne of grace, but he's coming on his knees. That's a very good lesson. But what bothers Abraham most of all is not the death of the wicked people in Sodom. What bothers him is that it seems like that this is not just. If God is going to treat the righteous the same way he treats the wicked. So that's repeated in this. Will you sweep up, he says, the righteous along with the wicked? And he says it this twice, which is a very strong statement. He says, far be it from you. Now, 
That's the boldest statement that Abraham makes. You know why that's the boldest statement? He's essentially telling God what God is like. Far be it from you, and he repeats it in, in verse, verse 25, which is the key verse in this whole text. Far be it from you. Far be it from you. This is not who you are. To sweep the righteous up with the wicked. To slay the righteous with the wicked. So that the righteous should be as the wicked. Right? This is his repetitive thing. That's the concern. And here's the fascinating thing. The Lord agrees. You know how I know he agrees? Because he agrees to Abraham as Abraham starts talking about the division between the righteous and the wicked. Lord not only is willing to not sweep the righteous away with the wicked, but he's willing to spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous, to show mercy on them. And they wouldn't even die because there's, wicked, there's righteous people there. Unfortunately, we know the rest of the story, there's just not any righteous people there. And so this is the second rhetorical question asked in the text. It is asked by Abraham. The first one was asked by Yahweh, is there anything too hard for the Lord? The second one is asked by Abraham, and the Lord agrees with it, so it's not a human, it's not wrong. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right, or literally mishpat, justice? Shall not the judge of all the earth do justice? And Abraham and the Lord agree that treating the righteous and the wicked alike is not justice. There must be a distinction between the two. Now he works down the list and goes through that and then it, we come to the end. And it is, isn't it fascinating? I don't know if you noticed this when we were reading this before, how the end of 18 is so abrupt. Um, I don't know what would happen. We're, we're left kind of wondering if Abraham had worked his way down to one, right? We don't know what would have happened with that. The text is intentionally vague there. It just leaves it at 10. Some have suggested, well, maybe... Abraham thought, well, surely Lot, you know, and his family makes up 10. Maybe, but that's speculation. We don't have, there's nothing brought into the story about Lot. But who ends the conversation? It says, when the Lord was done talking to him, he went his way. <laughs> Some have speculated, I think incorrectly, that the Lord had finally did get angry at, Mo, at Abraham, and he was like, ah, oh, that's enough. That's not in the text either. Simply, I think it's, this text is reminding us who is the judge of all the earth. Who ends the conversation? Who says when enough is enough? The sovereignty of God is on full display, even in, as we sang today, a mysterious way. That brings us to the end of the story before it then jumps quickly into the Sodom and Gomorrah saga. What do we do with this? What do we do with this story? I do believe there is Christological foreshadowing here. For time's sake, I won't really get into that, but does not Abraham's intercession point toward the intercession of Moses? Remember, he intercedes for the people. Then how can we not think of Hebrews? How can we not think of Jesus who tells Peter, I have prayed for you? How can we not think of Jesus interceding for the righteous, for the justice to be done? How can we not think not only of Jesus, how can we not think of the martyrs in heaven who are crying out, how long? There is clearly Christological point to the text, a foreshadowing. But I don't think it comes front and center as the main point of the text. There is clearly moral lessons in there. In fact, I think it's fascinating 
Abraham, sometimes we've kind of had the stories where we've looked at it and we've been like, eh, Abraham looks a little bit rusty there. I don't think somebody I really want to emulate my life after. But Abraham is somebody really coming, shining forth in this chapter as a good man, right? He's, so, he's good in the hospitality. He's abundantly generous. He's not holding on to his things. He doesn't even know who they are, and yet he's generous in the hospitality toward them. He's a good man. And here, he's interceding for the wicked city. We see Abraham as a moral man here. And Matthew Henry, who by no means is a legalist, and an old Puritan preacher, is by no means a legalist, and he indicated that the point of this text is to show that the one who believes in God and accounts to him for righteousness, that being a righteous man by grace through faith makes one also a good man. Like that, you see Abraham as the redeemed, regenerated man here, the one who's caring for others, who's praying. And I agree with all that, and I think there are lessons of moral virtue to be had in this text. But the two rhetorical questions, in my understanding, rise to the top. They're significant here as being the primary focus of the text, and it's a theological focus. And here are those two rhetorical questions again. First of all, is there anything too hard for the Lord? That is a question that relates to God's greatness, right? His power, His ability. Can God do what God wants to do. And the story answers the question for us. Yes, he can. But the second rhetorical question is a second significant reality that we face. Not the question of God's greatness, but the question of God's goodness. Will not the judge of the earth do what is right? And those twin theological concepts are perhaps two of the most difficult concepts we struggle with in this fallen, broken world. When we, tr when we battle to believe the Lord, it's one of those two we're struggling with. We're either struggling with believing that God is able to do something, or we're struggling to believe that God is good and will do something. When trials hit, we either don't believe that God is powerful enough, or we don't, and we, and we doubt it's because we're not believing God is powerful enough or we're not believing God is good enough. For me personally, I generally, I, I generally trend to fall on the is God good part. I don't usually stumble as full disclosure of my, the darkness and weirdness of my heart. I don't usually struggle with the power of God. I, I'm, I'm ready for a miracle. Like, that'd be awesome and I, I don't doubt it. But every day in the little things of life, I'm constantly struggling with God's goodness. Because what I see all around me often, it seems to be the opposite of justice. It seems like the righteous are swept up with the wicked. It seems like that's happening. And so the question that comes to the forefront constantly with me is, is God still just? Is he righteous? Is he really the judge of all this? Yes, he's judge, but is he a good judge? Now, there's a couple of things very briefly to consider when thinking through that question. First, when we're looking at the, the, the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, this question is not asked in light of bad things happening. What's going to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah is just not a bad thing. Bad thing happening to good people. This is the fire raining down from heaven. This is the direct, unmediated judgment of God. So the proper analogy to what's, what Abraham's concerned with and what's going on in Sodom is not me getting in a car wreck and bad thing happening. 
a drunk driver hitting me or something like that. But this is analogous to will God condemn the wicked in judgment? I mean, the righteous in judgment with the wicked. Will we escape? Will a righteous man escape the condemnation of God? That's the question being asked here. Not the question that's asked and appropriately asked in other places. Do bad things happen to righteous people? That's not the question. Will God condemn the righteous as he will condemn the wicked? That's the question. And the answer to that is gloriously described in chapter 19. Because even Lot, who as far as we can tell, looks less than righteous, is delivered by the grace of God from the same condemnation as the wicked. And the only reason this makes sense to us is because of Peter, who describes Lot as a righteous man. Not in his actions, not in his living, because that was surely not the case, which you'll see next week. And the answer is described, will God condemn the righteous? No, never. Far be it from the just judge. But this leads me to another question that everyone must examine and concern themselves. Am I righteous or am I wicked? Because everything matters with the answer to that question, right? If God will judge the wicked, reserves them for the day of judgment, and God will not in any way, far be it for him, to bring condemnation on the righteous, then whether one's righteous or wicked is the key question. And if we read in the New Testament, we can become very sure from the words of the Apostle Paul that there is none righteous, no, not one. They have all together become unprofitable. They all seek their way. There is none that does good, no, not one. So the answer to the Apostle Paul is, I guess I'm not if I'm one of the all in the world, and I am. Therefore, the conclusion of the Apostle Paul that all then have sinned and all have fallen short of God's glory. There is no righteous man. But there was one righteous man. One who was not tainted in the likeness of Adam. One who was himself perfect in both his divine nature and his human nature. And this one righteous man became unrighteousness, became sin. Unrighteousness, my unrighteousness, was laid on him. And God in his justice judged Jesus in the place of wicked people like me. And so the promise of the word is this, the promise of God is that if I am in him, if I am hidden in him, if I am protected by him, if I am united with him, planted in his death, then I live in his resurrection. Then I am no longer considered by the holy God wicked. I am as righteous as God himself in his perspective of me. I didn't say I'm righteous in my activity. I'm righteous in his disposition, 
his perspective. He sees me as the Son of God. And therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian believer, God is not angry with you. God is not frowning at you. He's not disappointed in you. He's not despising you. He's not frustrated. He's not rolling his eyes. He's not ready to throw the fire down on you because Jesus took all of that in your place. So on your good days and on your bad days, child of God, you are righteous. Will God sweep up the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from him. Praise the ancient of days.